Daniel chapter 5 for our text this morning. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Skip ahead to verse 30 of chapter 5. That same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. Let's pray. (laughs) Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And it is an intriguing word. What you teach us in the book of Daniel, Lord, it's unlike anything that we have come across so far in Scripture. We've come across mighty prophecies, amazing uh, occurrences, some incredible stories, but there's something powerfully unique about your prophecies through your servant Daniel. We recognize it as we've talked about, Lord, as the key that unlocks all biblical prophecy, especially the revelation of Jesus. And so we pray for enlightenment and understanding, that we might understand your word better, that we might know you better, and Father, that our faith will be encouraged. I also pray, Father, for the listening ears of anybody who is not walking in faith in Jesus Christ, that that would change because of the power of your word going out. Holy Spirit, we lean on you now and we look to you to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. So Belshazzar held a great feast. It is a month for feasting, is it not? November, the month of Thanksgiving, it's uh, right up there among my favorite months of the year. My favorite holiday of the year. I share this, I think, every year, but I love Thanksgiving because it's the one that's still somewhat unhindered by uh, commercialism. It's still a time for family. It's still a time for actually giving thanks. I'm amazed in our society we still call it Thanksgiving, you know, that, that it implies thankfulness to God, to the Lord. So I look forward to that feast. Uh, I'm actually looking forward to a lot of feasting this month. Cheryl spent yesterday, most of yesterday, in the kitchen which is a place I really like her to be. Just... <laughs> I'll get some emails on that one. But um, she was in there cooking all day long, and she, she's been studying and planning this out, but a way to prepare meals for the entire month in one day. And part of the reason is that we found with our schedule being so busy and so here, there, and everywhere that we're not having the time to sit down to family dinners. And it's not that we don't have the hour to sit together. It's the amount of prep and cooking that goes into it to get ready for it. Well, she's uh, jumping the gun on that and getting us ready for it so that we can have a little more Crawford family back to the dinner table. That's our intention. Uh, part of this was spurred on by uh, a couple weeks back. We were setting the table to have some guests over for dinner. And David walked in the room and looked and said, Oh, is it Thanksgiving? <laughs> I'm thinking that was the last time that we... <laughs> so we're moving ahead on this. We decided family dinners need to be more common. Michael J. Fox one time said about the dinner table, he said the oldest form of theater is the dinner table. It's got five or six people, new show every night, same players, good ensemble, the people have worked together a lot. Ronald Reagan once said in his farewell address, 1989 presidential farewell address, you may remember this, he said, all great change in America begins at the dinner table. At the dinner table. Well, today's study takes us to a dinner table, a feast in which both great theater and great change is about to take place. It's the dinner theater of the absurd. And the primary player here is Belshazzar. But it's also a changing of the guard. 
where we begin to realize the primary player is not Belshazzar, it is the Lord our God. Belshazzar is the king of Babylon. Verse 1 tells us that. He held a great feast. Belshazzar the king. A great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. It's 539 B.C., an October night. Nebuchadnezzar has been dead now 23 years. We are five kings down the line from Daniel chapter 4. We've just made a huge leap forward, which is very interesting to me. Now, we know a lot about what happened in those 23 years, primarily because there were three great historians who wrote about these things. And historians, I want to point out, who were very close in time to what is described in this chapter and in following chapters. Herodotus was an historian of the 5th century, a Greek historian. Xenophon was another Greek historian from the 5th into the 4th century. And Barossus was a Babylonian historian in the 4th century. And all three of these together give us very interesting information about the lines of the Neo-Babylonian kings. Beginning with Nabopolassar. Nabopolassar was the first uh, king of Neo-Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar's father. He reigned from 627 to 605 B.C. Following him, his son took the reins, Nebuchadnezzar, Nabu-Kuri-Usur. Man, it's hard to say his name the right way. Nabu-Kuduri-Usur, Nebuchadnezzar. From 605 to 562 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar reigned 43 years, which will show what a little wheatgrass can do for your health. (laughs) Following him was evil Merodach. Evil Merodach. He wasn't evil so much. Well, perhaps he was, but that's not what the name means. It's actually Amel Marduk, 562 to 560. He only reigned two years. Bible talks about him in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. He reigned two years. He was assassinated by his brother-in-law, also mentioned in the Bible, Nergal Sheretzer, who reigned from 560 to 556. He's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39. He ruled for four years. He died a natural death and left the throne to his son, Labashi Marduk. And Labashi Marduk sadly reigned two months in 556 B.C. He was described by these historians as, quote, an only child with diminished mental capacity. And maybe some of you have felt that way about your children as well. He was, uh, <laughs> Labashi Marduk was brutally beaten to death by a group of conspirators who then set a man by the name of Nabonidus on the throne. So we come down to Nabonidus, 556 to 539 B.C. Nabonidus, the historians tell us, was not a stay-at-home king. This guy was not much for the family dinner table. He preferred to be off on military campaigns. Spent most of his career as king away from the city of Babylon, off fighting battles and living outside uh, the realm. But here's the hitch to this. Nabonidus, up with, with the one exception of the book of Daniel, for many, many years, Nabonidus was the only one mentioned explicitly in history. You come to the end of this line of kings and you have Nabonidus. Well, he's not mentioned in Daniel, but Belshazzar is. And, and some old commentators tried to figure out, well, maybe Belshazzar was like a nickname of Nabonidus or something like that. It's not true. It doesn't fit. It doesn't work. Nabonidus, we know, was captured in battle by the Medo-Persian army, and then from there they went to surround Babylon and lay siege to 
the city. And the Greek historian Xenophon gives us some intriguing information. We know Nabonidus had already been killed. But Xenophon says that when the Medo-Persian army laid siege to the city and conquered it, an unnamed king was killed within the city walls. Now, Xenophon describes him as, quote, a youth, a riotous, voluptuous, cruel, godless man. So this unnamed guy, this ruler of sorts inside the city, history tells us there was someone there, someone bearing some kind of a king title. We know now that it's Belshazzar. We've known it since Daniel wrote it down. Belshazzar, who ruled as co-regent with his father from 553 to 539 B.C. Believing Bible scholars always understood this. They always said, well, that king must be Belshazzar, because the Bible tells us so. Of course, the critics say, well, there's no Belshazzar mentioned in history, therefore he doesn't exist. And I remind you that biblical history is never faulty. It's always accurate. It has always been proved true, time and time again. Co-regent Belshazzar, his father Nabonidus off fighting wars, leaves his son there in charge in the city. But of course, the book of Daniel was still the only recent or ancient writing to name Belshazzar leading critics to question the authenticity until 1881. In the region of Sippar, which is southern Iraq today, an amazing discovery was made. You may have heard about this, the Nabonidus Cylinder. The Nabonidus Cylinder, which is a clay cuneiform cylinder that was discovered there, excavated. It's now sitting in the British Museum. And it names one Belshar Usur. Belshar Usur, Belshazzar as co-regent with his father Nabonidus. And so, archaeology and history now have confirmed what the Bible already told us and we knew would be true. And I go through all of that just to say, my friends, God's Word stands up. And we need not worry if someone comes up with some idea or some thought that they say, well, this disproves Scripture. Just give it time. Because history will prove Scripture to be accurate and true. God does not lie. He is not a man. He does not lie. And what he says stands, always has, always will. And so Romans 15 verse 4 says, Whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through the perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men. Or for what it really is, the Word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. So the Word stands up. Back to Belshazzar. After his father Nabonidus was captured and the armies of the Medes and the Persians laid siege to the city of Babylon, inside the city, Belshazzar (laughs) partied like it was 1999. Verse 1, Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, or his forefather, his great-grandfather, the word can be used interchangeably, which his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. So the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. And by the way, the only reason for having the wives and the concubines at such a feast in these days was, well, immorality. Let's just put it this way, carnality. The only reason you invited the women to the feast, no offense, gang, ladies, but in those days, if the women were invited, they were for the pleasure of the men. 
So this was a, a riotous feast that was going on here. And he gets drunk. He calls for the vessels to be taken out of the temple. They begin drinking out of those vessels. They brought the vessels, verse 3, that had been taken out of the temple, the gold vessels, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now you might be asking, knowing that there was a siege going on around the city, was he unaware? Probably not. (laughs) There's an entire massive combination of two armies gathered around your city. Of course he's aware of that. Why then would Belshazzar be partying at a time like this? A couple of reasons. Number one, he thought Babylon was impenetrable. There's no getting in this city. We talked about this Wednesday night. There's 87 feet of a network of walls keeping the outside from the inside of Babylon. High walls that went up. 220 guard towers. 100 bronze gates all around the outside with iron bars. You couldn't get in. Impenetrable. The Euphrates River was diverted around the city in both directions and under the city and led in through channels so that they had fresh water to keep them safe and and drinking and, and refreshed as long as they needed. The city stores were good for 20 years of a city under siege and so impenetrable. He also partied because he was inebriated. He was out of it. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why the Bible tells us in Proverbs 31, verse 4, it is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink. For they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. Give strong drink to him who is perishing and wine to him whose life is bitter. So I would ask you this morning, are you perishing? Are you bitter? If so, drink up, by all means. Might as well, if if this life is the best you've got, if there's no other hope, if you're perishing in this world and your life is one of bitterness and you know no other hope, drink up. You might as well. Might as well just forget it all. But Paul says in Galatians 5.19, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality and impurity and sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not or will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what's interesting to me about that list is there are certain things on that list where we go, oh yeah, oh absolutely, I totally agree with that. Amen, Lord. And there are other things on the list where we kind of wink. Oh, yeah, well, you know, that's not such a big deal. I mean, it's on the list, but... And everything on the list is serious business to the Lord. And drinking's on the list. Well, Rick says drunkenness. Exactly. The bitter and the perishing... In John Trapp's commentary on Galatians, he said that drinking brings out three things. Ale out of the pot, money out of the purse, and wit out of the head. (laughs) But if that's all there is, again, I would encourage you all, if you have no other hope, no other uh, thing to look forward to in this life, bottoms up. But what if it's not all we've got? 
Paul offers a better experience. Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And if you want peace, and if you want ease, and if you want security, and if you want joy in this life, be filled with the Spirit. Because to be filled with wine, the Bible calls it dissipation. That word dissipation, by the way, in the Greek is asotia. Asotia is a negative derivative of the word soteria. Soteria, or you may have heard the word sozo. Life, salvation. Asotia is the negative derivative of salvation. Dissipation simply means that drunkenness and drinking dissipates salvation. It wears away hope. It wastes these things away. Which is why the Bible so often advises against it. But let me say this, the alcohol here, though problematic, was really just a warm-up to the main issue. You've heard of being in contempt of court. Well, this is a court of contempt. Because in this case, Belshazzar is openly mocking the Lord and God. He takes the holy vessels from the Jewish temple and begins to use these to tip back their drink. Use these for their wine goblets. And it may very well have been intentional. It's 539 B.C. Word is out. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if on the streets of Babylon, while the siege was taking place on the outside of the city, there was some whispering going on, some awareness that the prophecies of one Jeremiah were expiring at this very time. The old rabbis believed that Belshazzar was fully aware of the prophecies of Jeremiah, that they were about to come to an end on Jeremiah on the Jewish God's timetable. And so he went and got these goblets to kind of in the face of the Jewish God, your prophets say that we're going down. There's no way we're going down. Jeremiah 25 verse 11 says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Well, from when Jeremiah said that to that point, 70 years had ticked by. And the rabbis believe Belshazzar knew that. Jeremiah 27, verse 6. The Lord says, I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes and then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. Belshazzar was in contempt of this very prophecy. Whether he knew it or not, he stood in contempt of the prophetic word of God. And I ask you this morning, what do you do with biblical prophecy? What do you do with what the Lord God tells us is about to come to pass? Matthew 24, verse 27, Jesus said, The coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now get this, the flood came and took them all away, and they understood when the flood came. What did they understand? The word that had been preached for hundreds of years that the flood was coming. Noah preached it for 120 years. But prior to that, all the way back to the days of Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam, Enoch proclaimed that the flood would come. 400 years later. Well, how do you know Enoch proclaimed that? Because he named his son Methuselah. 
And Methuselah's name means in his death it shall come. So Methuselah, guess when he died? The year of the flood. He died just prior to the flood. And Jesus says that's what it's going to be like. People are going to be eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. And then suddenly, the Son of Man is going to return. Note that. That's a prophecy not of the rapture, but of His return. This is all going to be going on. And then suddenly, Jesus will return and establish His kingdom. Rapture happens before that. My daughter's getting married this summer. Yeah. (laughs) Just in time for the new health care law to kick in. And Hannah and Josiah, they have our blessing. Really, really love Josiah. He's a great guy, and, and I'm, I'm so pleased for Hannah. And it's going to be a great day. But i got to tell you the truth. Without her here to hear me say this, I'd rather be like Enoch. What do you mean? Well, Enoch was the prophet in Genesis 5.24 who was raptured before the days of Noah. Before the days of eating and drinking, giving in marriage, and being married. Now, that's not because in, in Hannah's marriage that, that the end is going to come. Her name is... just want to make sure you're clear on that. Her name is Hannah, not Methuselah. I know how you see how you could confuse that. <laughs> what I'm saying is this. To live our lives like there is no end like there is no finality, like there is no coming of Christ, is to live with God's Word in contempt. So we either live trusting and believing in the prophecies of our Lord, or we hold His Word in contempt. That was what was happening with Belshazzar. The handwriting had been on the wall for generations. And he didn't read it. And he didn't understand it. And so God got a little serious and literally began handwriting on the wall. Verse 5, Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew, grew pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints went slack. Yes, that means what you think it means. Someone run and get the king a pair of Depends. And his knees began knocking together. Verse 7, the king called aloud to bring the conjurers, the Chaldeans and the diviners. The king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Anyone who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as a third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, there's some internal consistency for you. Some proof that Belshazzar was his father's son as king on the throne. See, Nabonidus would be first ruler, Belshazzar would be second ruler, and now he's saying, I'll make someone third ruler. Mm-hmm. Okay, So even within the passage, there's consistency, as we would expect. Well, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. That's interesting because the, script, the inscription was in Aramaic. It was in their language, but they couldn't read it. And then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler and his nobles were perplexed. Well, in verse 10, the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the kings and his nobles. The party had turned to a panic and so she was fully aware that something had changed in there. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination 
Insight and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, again, speaking of him as a forefather or a great-grandfather, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Okay, a couple of things here. Who is this queen? This queen comes in. This is probably not Belshazzar's wife because his wives and concubines were at the party. This is probably more, more likely the, the, the queen mother. Perhaps Belshazzar's mother, Nabonidus' wife. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar's wife, who then would have naturally, based on the ancient customs, become the wife of the next king and then the wife of the next king, handed down until someone said, no more, I'm getting my own new wife here. But the queen mother, she was a woman of some influence, and she was a woman who obviously had been affected by Daniel's work with Nebuchadnezzar. And this is a woman who wasn't at the party, which is interesting. She didn't come in until she suddenly heard the panic coming out of the hall. This is a woman who remembered Daniel and perhaps even had contact with him, knew how to get a hold of him, how to get in touch with him. Now I told you, it's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar's death, which means it has been even longer since Daniel chapter 4. It's been a long time since Daniel's really been heard of at all. He's been out of the public eye. Daniel, this this great leader in Babylon, this this prophet of the Lord God, where's he been? You know, what's he been doing? At this point in the book of Daniel, he's probably about 85 years old. So he is a seasoned sage. And as far as we know, God really hadn't used Daniel for over a decade. We can say a decade because 10 years before, in 550 B.C., he had his vision in Daniel chapter 8, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. This is now 539 B.C. And aside from a couple of visions... Over this two-decade period, we really don't hear much else about Daniel at all. Sometimes the Lord does that. Sometimes He'll use you in a mighty way, and then years will go by, and you'll be sitting there going, I don't really feel like God's using me. I mean, I'm faithful. I'm in a relationship with Jesus. I'm in prayer, and I'm, I'm worshiping, and I'm in His Word, but I don't really feel like I'm being used so much. And I'm sure you've heard the comparison. It's actually an old, old comparison. It goes back centuries of the church as God's toolbox. There's even an old poem that that talks about different aspects of the tools in the toolbox. But the point is that God will reach into that toolbox and use the tool He needs at the time He needs it. In the meantime, we're still His tools. We're still in the box, but He may not need you in this moment to do a certain thing. In fact, He may not need you for another ten years. It doesn't mean you slide out of a relationship with Him. It doesn't mean you quit going to church. It doesn't mean you close up the Bible till He needs you again. What it means is, as a tool belonging to the Lord, you stay polished. You stay ready for that moment when He draws you out of the box and says, okay, now I need you again. I know it's been ten years, but I need you now. And I will use you at this point. It's like Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, preach the Word. Preach the Word, be ready in season and out of season. We could say in the toolbox or out of the toolbox. Be ready. 
Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And so let me encourage you, if you feel like you're not really being used right now, just stay ready for use. God will use you when He sees fit. Well, verse 13, Then Daniel, 85-year-old Daniel, was brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you the Daniel who was one of the exiles from Judah, about whom my father the king uh, brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me. But they could not declare the interpretation or its message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck. And you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. My, Belshazzar is impressed with himself. As he speaks to this old man who comes in. And Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself. I love Daniel. Give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. In one word, whippersnapper. (laughs) Daniel looks at Belshazzar and reads him for who he is. Daniel is now older and wiser. Daniel the sage. And he is not impressed with this upstart, buffoonish king. And he's not intimidated by him either. Belshazzar is to Daniel as a court jester. Daniel reads him like a book. I think it's interesting in such a quick amount of time, at least for us, because we just go from chapter 4 to chapter 5, but how quickly the tone changes for our prophet friend. How in Daniel chapter 4, when he is talking with Nebuchadnezzar, he had a hard time bringing the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream because it indicated the king was about to lose his mind. And Daniel had a heart for Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel clearly had a love for Nebuchadnezzar that was interesting when Nebuchadnezzar was the king who destroyed his homeland and yet Daniel said, may this dream not have anything to do with you. It would be better if this was for your enemies. And his thoughts were alarmed himself and he, he, he paused, he hesitates and Nebuchadnezzar actually has to say to Daniel, look, tell me the interpretation. It's okay, Daniel. He can tell Daniel's upset by it. It's a little different now. Daniel looks at at King Belshazzar, the buffoon. And he doesn't have a whole lot of love for him. In fact, there's no love lost between Daniel and Belshazzar. In fact, in both cases, with Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, Daniel just preaches the word. He brings the word. In one case, he brings the word with compassion. In another case, he brings the word with judgment. Verse 18, O King, The Most High God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. Because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed. Whomever he wished, he spared alive. And whomever he wished, he elevated. And whomever he wished, he humbled. By the way, there's a key right there as to why Daniel would submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Did you catch it? It's because God lifted him up. It's because Daniel recognized that Nebuchadnezzar was God's man. 
The prophet Isaiah had prophesied about that. Daniel, being a man of the word, would have known that and so acquiesced and so said, this Nebuchadnezzar is the king whom my Lord called to the fore. And he honored him as such. But, verse 20, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he became, be, behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was driven away from mankind. His heart was made like that of beasts. His dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle. Hence the wheat grass comment earlier on. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that He sets over it whomever He wishes. Yet you, His son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew All this, note that. Belshazzar was fully aware of the story of Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. Fully aware of exactly what had happened. This had been talked about through the years. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven. And they have brought the vessels of of his house before you. You and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which you do not see, hear or understand. But the God in whose hand are your life breath, probably upon there, in whose hand, the handwriting on the wall, and all your ways you have not glorified, then the hand was sent from him, and this instruction was written out. Daniel gets after it. He preaches the word, man. He brings the gospel and all of its truth to bear. He lays it out. He grabs the opportunity here to speak truth. Though Belshazzar is a buffoon, even so, Daniel speaks the truth in hopes that perhaps he will wise up. And if we're not willing to read the handwriting on the wall of the centuries, God will sometimes come right into your life and write on your heart or write on the walls of your home or the walls of your business to get your attention. And Daniel was the vessel then to interpret that. To look at Belshazzar and say, you see this writing? You don't need this writing to tell you what the problem is. It's been written. The Lord has been speaking. And it reminds me that we as followers of Jesus need to look for the opportunities. Need to look for the open windows in the lives of non-believers around us. And it may be a tragedy someone goes through. Maybe some kind of heartache. Maybe a financial disaster. And you as a believer, don't just sit there and go, oh yeah, well I'll pray for you. Pray what? That their life will get better? You realize if you pray for someone's life to get better, but you don't pray for your salvation, they're still going to hell? And so as followers of Jesus Christ, we look for these opportunities, and when someone's hurting, the opportunity to step in and go, there is a God who loves you, who is bigger than your circumstances, and wants to see you saved, not just today, but for eternity. And that's exactly what Daniel does as he preaches this message to Belshazzar. He uses Nebuchadnezzar as example and talks about how Nebuchadnezzar's life was changed by a vision and a radical set of circumstances. And he says, but you have paid no attention to this. Be ready, gang, in season and out of season. Verse 25, Daniel continues on. He says, now this is the inscription that was written out. Mini, mini, miny, mo. No, mine, mine, tekel, 
Ufarsin. Mene, mene, tekel, Ufarsin. Now I pointed out before, these words written on the wall by this disembodied hand. By the way, that's how you stop a party real quick. If you want to, you know, you want to send the folks home, it's just too riotous in your house, you just call for disembodied hand and things are over immediately. So, these words were written in Chaldean Aramaic. These are words that everybody would have read and should have understood. And all the wise men come in and all the conjurers and all the idiots of the kingdom, he brings them in and they, and they look at these words and they're like, I don't get it. They didn't understand the very word written in their language. Why not? Well, the same reason why critics who read the book of Daniel don't understand it. And the same reason why people reject the message of the truth. And Jesus explained it. Matthew 13.10, the disciples came and said to Jesus, Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus answered them and said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And what he have, he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. What's Jesus talking about? Faith. Faith. If you have faith, more faith will be given. But if you have no faith, even what belief system you have is going to be taken away from you. You realize that all the parables of Jesus were spoken in plain language. A language, the common Aramaic of the day. The plain language that the people would have heard and understood. You know the language, but you don't understand what I'm saying to you. Why not? Because what I'm saying to you requires faith. Well, that's kind of a religious word. Well, then let's make it a non-religious word. Okay? Faith is simply a measure of trust. Faith is a willingness to take God at His word. Faith is taking that step forward where you say, I'm going to believe Him. I'm going to read the Bible and trust and believe that it really is the Word of God speaking to me. That is faith. And as you take that small step of faith, it's amazing how your faith begins to increase. Faith upon faith upon faith. And the more you trust the Lord, the more trust you have in the Lord, and the more trust will be given to you to trust Him even further. And this explains to us in our culture why after 6,000 years of Western history, why people still can't read the writing on the wall. Because without faith, people are left to be either fearful of the Word of God, or critical of the Word of God, or attacking the Word of God, or even legislating against the very message that God wrote out by hand for us. We shouldn't be amazed at this story of the handwriting on the wall because God wrote through the prophets and through inspired men across the ages His Word in clear language that we should understand. So here's what the three words mean. Mine, mine means numbered, numbered. Tekel means weighed. Upharsin means divided. And Daniel explains this, verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Mine, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. And Perez, 
your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Now, you might go, wait a minute. It was Mene Tekel Upharsin, and now it's Mene Tekel Perez. Why is it Perez? Perez is the singular form of the word for Upharsin. And Daniel uses both words. Why does he do that? It may be a Hebrew wordplay, because the word Upharsin sounds an awful lot like Farsi, which is the language of the Persians. The word Perez is very similar to the word paras. Paras was the Hebrew word for Persia. So again, he's, he's making an allusion to the Persians, and the word Perez or Upharsin means divided, because the kingdom is now going to be divided to two kingdoms, the Medes and the Persians. The very first king is going to be Darius the Mede, and then he's going to be followed by Cyrus the Persian. The Medes and the Persians are going to now take this once glorious singular kingdom of Babylon, and it's going to be divided up into a two-pronged kingdom with two people groups trying to hold it together, and they won't be able to do that. In verse 29, then Belshazzar gave orders and they clothed Daniel and put a purple, uh, with purple and put a gold necklace around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that now he had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. Big deal. The kingdom was only going to last minutes. For that same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Belshazzar's number was up. He was weighed and found lacking. His kingdom divided between the Medes and the Persians. Many of you Bible students know the story. Let me remind you of it. On this October night, the city was under siege. While Belshazzar and his nobles feasted at the table, a brilliant general devised a scheme to penetrate the impenetrable walls, impenetrable walls of Babylon. He took the great river Euphrates and diverted it six miles north of Babylon. Diverted it into a huge basin and it began to pour into that basin as they changed the direction of the river. And so all of a sudden the river level, the water level drops to ankle deep. Once it's ankle deep, his men just walked in through the canals right under the walls that had been built for the river to come through. They were in the city center before the guards even knew what was going on. Even as Daniel is sharing the meaning of the interpretation of the inscription, they're inside the walls. And they are coming for Belshazzar, and he died that night. The king who took his place, verse 31 tells us, was Darius the Mede. We'll hear more about him in further chapters of Daniel. But the general who led the charge, following following Darius to the throne, was named in Bible prophecy 150 years before this. You Bible students, what's his name? Cyrus. And you can read his name, Isaiah 44, verses 24 through Isaiah 45, verse 7. Read what it says about Cyrus. God's prophecy of what Cyrus, the Persian, would do. Naming him a century and a half before he's born, and the prophecy said this guy, this Cyrus, this one named Cyrus, would come along and he would dry up rivers. That's exactly what he did. He would subdue nations. He did. He would cause kings to wet themselves. The Bible tells us this. (laughs) And we see it happen in Daniel 5 with Belshazzar. It's remarkable. It says he will open bronze doors and iron barred gates before one of those gates was even put up for the city of Babylon. It says Cyrus would acquire vast hordes of treasure like those that were in the stores of Babylon. 
And when I said the handwriting was on the wall, I meant it. It was on the wall over 150 years before Belshazzar rose to the throne as his father's co-regent. He should have known what was coming. God always does this. Note this. He says it, and then He does it. He declares it, and then He performs it. He makes it clear what He's about to do, and then does exactly what He said He would do. Nebuchadnezzar put it this way in Daniel 4.35, He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one, note this, no one can ward off His hand. You can't push away the hand of God. You cannot stop what God has said He is going to do. And the handwriting has been on the wall for centuries and we have seen it over and over and over. He says it and He does it. He says it and He does it. And this is just yet another story that proves that to be the case. I want to give you three big contemporary lies as we finish this morning. Three big lies that are a part of the whole American dream. No offense you know, to those patriots among us. I love our Constitution. And I love our country. But we have been told three lies. I'm going to counter these with three very godly truths that have been given to us in this passage. Lie number one, time is on our side. Time's on our side. Mine. Our days are numbered. The Bible tells us in Psalm 90 verse 12, teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Our days are numbered, every one of us. The Lord knows exactly. Uh, Psalm 139.16, in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. Our days are numbered. And, And we get so worked up and so upset when we see People die in different ways and and different times. Not understanding that our days are numbered. Our days are ordained. The Lord has already decided exactly how long you're going to live, how many days you're going to be given, and in His wisdom and His grandeur and His greatness, He said, this is what you deserve. This is what Actually, we all get more than we deserve. This is what you have. This is my allotment for you. So why do we stress about it? If I die before the age of 50, which would mean this year, why are we concerned? Numbered. Your days are numbered. Well, I don't like that. That's okay. But it's true. Ephesians 5.15 says, Therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. And they are evil days. And this is a dark and painful world that we live in. What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, Rick, I don't like this negativity. Our days are numbered. What do we do with that? Do we panic? Do we despair? Do we party? See, a lot of the parties of the world are just about that, ignoring the reality of the world. And trying to ignore the pain, trying to drown what's going on around us with a little bit of drink and a little bit of song and a little bit of frivolity while we can to forget how hard life really is. Hey, it's a dark world. Be aware of that. The days are evil. Jesus would say to you, has said to me, Luke 12.35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. Be like men who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open to him when he comes and knocks. Time is not on our side. 
Our days have been numbered. Lie number two. Your body is a renewable resource. (laughs) Now we laugh at that because we all know that that's a lie. And yet we work so hard to try and make it true. Tackle. We've been weighed and found deficient. <laughs> Let me just ask a question. How many of you check the scale once a month? I do. I'm raising my hand. So you, you check the scale once a month. Really? All right. Well, I'm impressed. How many of you check the scale every week? <laughs> there you are. There you are. I knew it. How many of you step on the scale every day? The honesty is coming out now. Uh, more than once a day? Anyone? <laughs> you know what? I can tell you what my weight was this morning. We have a scale right by the shower. Step on the scale. Oh, okay. I guess no more Twinkies today. <laughs> You know what? We're standing on the wrong scale. We are standing on the wrong scale. We have been weighed. The Bible tells us, 1 Timothy 4, verse 8, bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not opposed to healthy living. I think healthy living is a good idea. You want to take care of the temple that God has given you. What I'm opposed to is the overemphasis on it. And our culture is so into our bodies like they're some kind of a renewable resource. Like if we do the right thing, we can extend our lives. Your days have been numbered. You're not extending anything. You have just so much time. Yeah, well, I've been working out and I've been eating that wheatgrass stuff and I think I've got about ten years. And then the bus hits you and it's over. (laughs) Our days have been numbered, but gang, we have also been weighed. And on God's scale, I am either overweight with sin or I am underweight with righteousness. Either way, I've got a weight problem. But there is hope. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, We do not lose heart, though our outer body is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. And I'll tell you what, when it comes to eternal glory, I want to be overweight. (laughs) I want to be a weighty guy when it comes to the glory of God in my life. Paul says, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. So if you're stepping on God's scale and you're finding that you are deficient, come to the only one who is sufficient to save you. Come to Jesus Christ. Third lie. And this is a big one. You can have it both ways. You can have it both ways. One foot in culture, one foot in Christ. One foot in the kingdom of the world, one foot in the kingdom of heaven. You can have it both ways. You know what? Perez. We cannot live divided. We cannot live divided. The Pharisees accused Jesus of casting out demons by Satan. Let me just read this to you. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. 
And any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom are your sons, or by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, note this, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter a strong man's house, the strong man's house, and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man? That's why Jesus was driving out demons, by the way. Drive out the demons, bind the strong man, so that he could come into the house and preach the gospel. And get the word now to open ears. And then he will plunder the house. What what am I saying here? That the kingdom of God is not half in, half out. It is an all-in, all-out proposition. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. As Jesus said to the church at Laodicea, I know your deeds are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. And Jesus knew. He knew that His coming to this earth would be Perez, divisive. He knew that by coming at all, it would cause great division. Luke chapter 12, verse 50. The Prince of Peace, note you, says this. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no. But rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided. Three against two. Two against three. They will be divided. A father against son. Son against father. Mother against daughter. Daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Maybe on that last one you're not so surprised. (laughs) But he says, I came to bring division. We live in a divided country. And I don't see it going back the other way. This is a divided country. This kingdom, the kingdom we call America, has been numbered, has been weighed, and is now divided. You want to talk about prophetic application, there's one for you. All you got to do is turn on CNN or Fox News and watch for five minutes as they bring in a Democrat and a Republican and see how divided we are. And see how distant it's becoming. And the chasm is greater and greater. And we can't live that way. And you can't live your life that way playing the game with Jesus. He doesn't want to play that game. But what about the Prince of Peace? I thought He came to bring peace. Listen, the division that came in Jesus' first coming was not the reason for His coming. It was the result of His coming. It was not God's intention to divide, but it's what He knew exactly would happen. That He would show up He would bring the gospel. He would bring the grace. He would fulfill the handwriting on the wall. People would see that and they would be divided in response. He knew this was going to happen. He didn't come to divide people. He came. Listen, He came to die for our sins, period. That's why He came. But the very acceptance of His death, of His resurrection, and especially of His Lordship means that we will be divided. And and quite literally divided out of this worldly kingdom. Are you surprised that the world is opposed to Christianity? Are you surprised that these things are happening and it's becoming more and more clear? It's exactly what happens when you accept the Lordship of Christ. You say, I will live for that kingdom, not this one. 
I'm not going to be kind of, you know, a double agent here. I'm going to live for Christ. And if you choose to live for Christ, you will be persecuted for it. You will be divided out from the world. The Bible says, Revelation 22.11, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. The one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Behold, I'm coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. And here's the bottom line. The earth's number is almost up. It's been weighed and is desperately wanting, and this world is being divided. The world is being divided. I sat on that for a while this week. I thought, that's all true. It's all absolutely true. It's a little disconcerting, but it is true. And I prayed about this. I said, Lord, where's the hope now in this? I mean, I know the hope is in Jesus, but in the story before us, we just see in Daniel's story, division. We see Daniel, old Daniel, raised up to third position in Babylon, but Babylon's no more that night. So where's the hope? Guess what? There's a great hope here. For Daniel, the division of Babylon meant that God was fulfilling His prophecies right on schedule. For Daniel, that was a good night. For Daniel to come face to face with Cyrus. I I, I imagine the scene. Cyrus coming into Babylon, running into an old prophet, and Daniel going, you're Cyrus, aren't you? How do you know my name? One of our prophets talked about you 150 years ago. It's a good night for Daniel. Because the division, note this, the division of Babylon meant the fulfillment of the promises. My friends, it also meant a return to Judea was imminent for His people. As we will see when we get to Daniel chapter 9. In the same way, our world is being divided. That should be good news. To the degree that we recognize God's kingdom is on the way. And as citizens of that kingdom, we know where we stand. And this morning, Jesus would invite all people to come to Him by faith, to an eternal kingdom which can never be divided. Ronald Reagan said, all great change in America begins at the dinner table. I disagree. I think all great change in America or in this world begins in the heart. And so the question before us this morning is, will we read the handwriting on the wall? Will we read and understand? And will we choose the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Let's bow. Father, I, I recognize when I was a kid, I didn't understand a lot of things. Most kids don't. But Lord, it seems as though I grew up at that time in a world that most people recognized You, acknowledged You. There's a lot of church going, going on. And over the years, Father, the nearly five decades of my life, I have seen such a radical change. I couldn't have guessed. I couldn't have imagined. Such a division in our world. Battle lines being drawn. Sides being taken. People in opposition. Lord, to Your glorious name, to Your church, to Your people Israel. People in opposition just growing in in their in the loudness of their of their cries. There is a noisy opposition. And it doesn't seem that it's rolling back the other way, but it's just increasing. 
We live in a divided world. And we know, Father, the days of this earth are numbered. And we know that the weight of this earth is deficient to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so this morning, we offer ourselves to You. And we pray, Lord Jesus, allegiance to Your kingdom. And we desire to be on Your side and to live lives for You and truly against or opposed to the ways of the world. I pray what I've been praying a lot recently, Father, that You would make us as a fellowship so different and so unique in our following after Jesus that those who don't have salvation could see clearly the choice before them. Use us, Father, how You see fit. And Father, if there's anyone who wanders into the barn this morning outside of faith in Jesus or perhaps wondering about the whole thing, I ask Your Holy Spirit to invade the city and divide out the lies and speak truth. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.